Book Four, Chapter One, Part One of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book Four. What Life Is. Chapter One, Part One, Frenchams. One. Matthew Peel Swinnerton sat in the long dining room of the Pension Frencham, Rue Lord Byron, Paris, and he looked out of place there. It was an apartment about thirty feet in length and of the width of two windows, which sufficiently lighted one half of a very long table with round ends. The gloom of the other extremity was illumined by a large mirror in a tarnished gilt frame, which filled a good portion of the wall opposite the windows. Near the mirror was a high folding screen of four leaves, and behind this screen could be heard the sound of a door continually shutting and opening. In the long wall to the left of the windows were two doors, one dark and important, a door of state, through which a procession of hungry and a procession of sated, solemn, self-conscious persons passed twice daily, and the other, a smaller door, glazed, its glass painted with wreaths of roses, not an original door of the house, but a late breach in the wall that seemed to lead to the dangerous and to the naughty. The wallpaper and the window drapery were rich and forbidding, dark in hue, mysterious of pattern. Over the state door was a pair of antlers, and at intervals— so high up as to defy inspection, engravings and oil-paintings made oblong patches on the walls. They were hung from immense nails with porcelain heads, and they appeared to depict the more majestic aspect of man and nature. One engraving, over the mantelpiece and nearer earth than the rest, unmistakably showed Louis-Philippe and his family in attitudes of virtue. Beneath this royal group a vast gilt clock, flanked by pendants of the same period, gave the right time, a quarter-past seven. And down the room, filling it, ran the great white table, bordered with bowed heads and the backs of chairs. There were over thirty people at the table, and the peculiarly restrained noisiness of their knives and forks on the plates proved that they were a discreet and a correct people. Their clothes, blouses, bodices, and jackets did not flatter the lust of the eye. Only two or three were in evening dress. They spoke little, and generally in a timorous tone, as though silence had been enjoined. Somebody would half-whisper a remark, and then his neighbour, absently fingering her bread and lifting gaze from her plate into vacancy, would conscientiously weigh the remark, and half-whisper in reply, "'I dare say.' But a few spoke loudly and volubly, and were regarded by the rest, who envied them, as underbred. Food was quite properly the chief preoccupation. The diners ate, as those eat who are paying a fixed price per day for as much as they can consume, while observing the rules of the game. Without moving their heads, they glanced out of the corners of their eyes, watching the manoeuvres of the three starched maids who served. They had no conception of food, save as portions laid out in rows on large silver dishes, and when a maid bent over them deferentially, balancing the dish, they summed up the offering in an instant, and in an instant decided how much they could decently take, 
and to what extent they could practise the theoretic liberty of choice. And if the food, for any reason, did not tempt them, or if it egregiously failed to coincide with their aspirations, they considered themselves aggrieved, for, according to the game, they might not command. They had the right to seize all that was presented under their noses, like genteel tigers, and they had the right to refuse. That was all. The dinner was thus a series of emotional crises for the diners, who knew only that full dishes and clean plates came endlessly from the banging door behind the screen, and that ravaged dishes and dirty plates vanished endlessly through the same door. They were all eating similar food simultaneously. They began together, and they finished together. The flies that haunted the paper bunches which hung from the chandeliers to the level of the flower-vases were more free. The sole event that chequered the exact regularity of the repast was the occasional arrival of a wine-bottle for one of the guests. The receiver of the wine-bottle signed a small paper in exchange for it, and wrote largely a number on the label of the bottle. Then, staring at the number, and fearing that, after all, it might be misread by a stupid maid or an unscrupulous compeer, he would rewrite the number on another part of the label, even more largely. Matthew Peel Swinnerton obviously did not belong to this world. He was a young man, of twenty-five or so, not handsome, but elegant. Though he was not in evening dress, though he was, as a fact, in a very light grey suit, entirely improper to a dinner, he was elegant. The suit was admirably cut, and nearly new, but he wore it as though he had never worn anything else. Also, his demeanour, reserved, yet free from self-consciousness, his method of handling a knife and fork, the niceties of his manner in transferring food from the silver dishes to his plate, the tone in which he ordered half a bottle of wine. All these details infallibly indicated to the company that Matthew Peel Swinnerton was their superior. Some folks hoped that he was the son of a lord, or even a lord. He happened to be fixed at the end of the table, with his back to the window, and there was a vacant chair on either side of him. This situation favoured the hope of his high rank. In truth, he was the son, the grandson, and several times the nephew of earthenware manufacturers. He noticed that the large compote, as it was called in his trade, which marked the centre of the table, was the production of his firm. This surprised him, for Peel, Swinnerton and Co., known and revered throughout the five towns as Peel's, did not cater for cheap markets. A late guest startled the room, a fat, flabby, middle-aged man, whose nose would have aroused the provisional hostility of those who have convinced themselves that Jews are not as other men. His nose did not definitely brand him as a usurer and a murderer of Christ, but it was suspicious. His clothes hung loose, and might have been anybody's clothes. He advanced with brisk assurance to the table, bowed somewhat too effusively to several people, and sat down next to Peel Swinnerton. One of the maids at once brought him a plate of soup, and he said, "'Thank you, Marie,' smiling at her. He was evidently a habitué of the house. His spectacle eyes beamed the superiority which comes of knowing girls by their names. He was seriously handicapped in the race for sustenance, being two and a half courses behind, but he drew level with speed, and then, having accomplished this, he sighed and pointedly engaged Peel Swinnerton with his sociable glance. "'Ah!' he breathed out. "'Nuisance when you come in late, sir,' Peel Swinnerton gave a reluctant affirmative. 
doesn't only upset you, it upsets the house. Servants don't like it.' "'No,' murmured Peel Swinnerton, "'I suppose not.' "'However, it's not often I'm late,' said the man. "'Can't help it sometimes. Business. Worst of these French business people is they've no notion of time. Appointments? God bless my soul!' "'Do you come here often?' asked Peel Swinnerton. He detested the fellow quite inexcusably, perhaps because his serviette was tucked under his chin, but he saw that the fellow was one of your determined talkers, who always win in the end. Moreover, as being clearly not an ordinary tourist in Paris, the fellow mildly excited his curiosity. "'I live here,' said the other. "'Very convenient for a bachelor, you know. Have done for years. My office is just close by. You may know my name. Louis Marden.' Peel Swinnerton hesitated. The hesitation convicted him of not knowing his Paris well. "'House agent,' said Louis Marden, quickly. "'Oh, yes,' said Peel Swinnerton, vaguely recalling a vision of the name among the advertisements on newspaper kiosks. "'I expect,' Mr. Marden went on, "'my name's as well known as anybody's in Paris.' "'I suppose so,' assented Peel Swinnerton. The conversation fell for a few moments. "'Staying here long?' Mr. Marden demanded, having added up Peel Swinnerton as a man of style and of means, and being puzzled by his presence at that table. "'I don't know,' said Peel Swinnerton. This was a lie, justified in the utterer's opinion, as a repulse to Mr. Marden's vulgar inquisitiveness. Such inquisitiveness as might have been expected from a fellow who tucked his serviette under his chin. Peel Swinnerton knew exactly how long he would stay. He would stay until the day after the morrow. He had only about fifty francs in his pocket. He had been making a fool of himself in another quarter of Paris, and he had descended to the Pension Frenchum as a place where he could be absolutely sure of spending not more than twelve francs a day. Its reputation was high, and it was convenient for the Galleria Museum, where he was making some drawings which he had come to Paris expressly to make and without which he could not reputably return to England. He was capable of foolishness, but he was also capable of wisdom, and scarcely any pressure of need would have induced him to write home for money to replace the money spent on making himself into a fool. Mr. Marden was conscious of a check, but being of an accommodating disposition, he at once tried another direction. "'Good food here, eh?' he suggested. Oh, "'Very,' said Peel Swinnerton, with sincerity. "'I was quite—' Uh... At that moment a tall, straight woman, of uncertain age, pushed open the principal door, and stood for an instant in the doorway. Peel Swinnerton had just time to notice that she was handsome and pale, and that her hair was black, and then she was gone again, followed by a clipped poodle that accompanied her. She had signed with a brief gesture to one of the servants— who at once set about lighting the gas-jets over the table. "'Who is that?' asked Peel Swinnerton, without reflecting that it was now he who was making advances to the fellow whose napkin covered all his shirt-front. "'That's the missus, that is,' said Mr. Marden, in a lower and semi-confidential voice. "'Oh, Mrs. Frencham?' "'Yes, but her real name is Scales,' said Mr. Marden proudly. "'Widow, I suppose?' "'Yes.' "'And she runs the whole show?' "'She runs the entire contraption,' said Mr. Marden solemnly. "'And don't you make any mistake.' He was getting familiar. 
Peel Swinnerton beat him off once more, glancing with careful, uninterested nonchalance at the gas-burners, which exploded one after another with a little plop under the application of the maid's taper. The white table gleamed more whitely than ever under the flaring gas. People at the end of the room, away from the window, instinctively smiled, as though the sun had begun to shine. The aspect of the dinner was changed, ameliorated, and with the reiterated statement that the evenings were drawing in, though it was only July, conversation became almost general. In two minutes Mr. Marden was genially talking across the whole length of the table, the meal finished in a state that resembled conviviality. Matthew Peel Swinnerton might not go out into the crepuscular delights of Paris. Unless he remained within the shelter of the pension, he could not hope to complete successfully his reconversion from folly to wisdom. So he bravely passed through the small rose-embroidered door into a small glass-covered courtyard, furnished with palms, wicker armchairs, and two small tables, and he lighted a pipe, and pulled out of his pocket a copy of The Referee. That retreat was called the lounge. It was the only part of the pension where smoking was not either a positive crime or a transgression against good form. He felt lonely. He said to himself grimly in one breath that pleasure was all rot, and in the next he suddenly demanded of the universe how it was that pleasure could not go on for ever, and why he was not Mr. Barney Bonato. Two old men entered the retreat, and burnt cigarettes with many precautions. Then Mr. Lewis Marden appeared, and sat down boldly next to Matthew like a privileged friend. After all, Mr. Marden was better than nobody whatever, and Matthew decided to suffer him, especially as he began, without preliminary skirmishing, to talk about life in Paris, an irresistible subject. Mr. Marden said, in a worldly tone, that the existence of a bachelor in Paris might easily be made agreeable, but that, of course, for himself, well, he preferred, as a general rule, the pension Frenchman sort of thing, and it was excellent for his business. Still, he could not—he knew—he compared the advantages of what he called knocking about in Paris with the equivalent in London. His information about London was out of date, and Peel Swinnerton was able to set him right on important details. But his information about Paris was infinitely precious and interesting to the younger man, who saw that he had hitherto lived under strange misconceptions. "'Have a whisky? asked Mr. Marden suddenly. "'Very good here,' he added. "'Thanks,' drawled Peel Swinnerton. The temptation to listen to Mr. Marden, as long as Mr. Marden would talk, was not to be overcome, and presently— when the old men had departed, they were frankly telling each other stories in the dimness of the retreat. Then, when the supply of stories came to an end, Mr. Marden smacked his lips over the last drop of whisky and ejaculated, "'Yes!' as if giving a general confirmation to all that had been said. "'Do have one with me,' said Matthew politely. It was the least he could do. The second supply of whiskies was brought into the lounge by Mr. Marden's Marie. He smiled on her familiarly, and remarked that he supposed she would soon be going to bed after a hard day's work. She gave a moo and a flounce in reply, and swished out. "'Carries herself well, don't she?' observed Mr. Marden, as though Marie had been an exhibit at an agricultural show. Ten years ago she was very fresh and pretty, but of course it takes it out of a place like this.' 
"'But still,' said Peel Swinnerton, "'they must like it, or they wouldn't stay. "'That is, unless things are very different here from what they are in England.' The conversation seemed to have stimulated him to examine the woman question in all its bearings, with philosophic curiosity. "'Oh, they like it,' Mr. Marden assured him, as one who knew. "'Besides, Mrs. Scales treats them very well. I know that. She told me. She's very particular.' He looked around to see if Walls had ears. "'By Jove, you've got to be, but she treats them well. You'd scarcely believe the wages they get, and pickings. Now, the Hotel Moscow. Know the Hotel Moscow?' Happily, Peel Swinnerton did. He had been advised to avoid it, because it catered exclusively for English visitors. But in the Pension Frenchum he had accepted something even more exclusively British than the Hotel Moscow.' Mr. Marden was quite relieved at his affirmative. "'The Hotel Moscow is a limited company now,' said he. "'English.' "'Really?' "'Yeah, I floated it. It was my idea. Great success. That's how I know all about the Hotel Moscow.' He looked at the walls again. "'I wanted to do the same here,' he murmured, and Peel Swinnerton had to show that he appreciated the confidence. "'But she never would agree. I've tried her always.' "'Now go. It's a thousand pities. "'Paying thing, eh? "'This place, I should say it was, "'and I ought to be able to judge. "'I reckon Mrs. Scales is one of the shrewdest women "'you'd meet in a day's march. "'She's made a lot of money here, lot of money. "'And there's no reason why a place like this "'shouldn't be five times as big as it is. Ten times. "'The scope's unlimited, my dear sir. "'All that's wanted is capital.' "'Naturally, she has capital of her own. "'She could get more, but then, as she says, "'she doesn't want the place any bigger. "'She says it's now just as big as she can handle. "'That isn't so. "'She's a woman who can handle anything, a born manager. "'But even if it was so, all she'd have to do would be to retire. "'Only leave us the place and the name. "'It's a name that counts. "'And she's made the name of Frenchman worth something, I can tell you.' "'Did she get the place from her husband?' asked Peel Swinnerton. Her own name of Scales intrigued him. Mr. Marden shook his head. "'Bought it on her own, after the husband's time, for a song, a song. I know, because I knew the original Frenchams.' "'You must have been in Paris a long time,' said Peel Swinnerton. Mr. Marden could never resist an opportunity to talk about himself. His was a wonderful history.' and Peel Swinnerton, while scorning the man for his fatuity, was impressed. And when that was finished— "'Yes,' said Mr. Marden, after a pause, reaffirming everything in general by a single monosyllable. Shortly afterwards he rose, saying that his habits were regular. "'Good night,' he said, with a mechanical smile. "'Good night,' said Peel Swinnerton, trying to force the tone of fellowship and not succeeding. Their intimacy, which had sprung up like a mushroom, suddenly fell into dust. Peel Swinnerton's unspoken comment to Mr. Marden's back was, "'Ass!' Still, the sum of Peel Swinnerton's knowledge had indubitably been increased during the evening, and the hour was yet early. Half-past ten, the Folly Marigny, with its beautiful architecture and its crowds of white toilettes and its frothing of champagne and of beer— and its musicians, in tight red coats, was just beginning to be alive, and at a distance of scarcely a stone's throw, 
Peel Swinnerton pictured the terraced, glittering hall which had been the prime origin of his exceeding foolishness, and he pictured all the other resorts, great and small, garlanded with white lanterns in the Champs-Élysées, and the sombre aisles of the Champs-Élysées, where mysterious pale figures walked troublingly under the shades of trees, while snatches of wild song or absurd brassy music floated up from the resorts and the restaurants. He wanted to go out and spend those fifty francs that remained in his pocket. After all, why not telegraph to England for more money? "'Oh, damn it!' he said savagely, and stretched his arms and got up. The lounge was very small, gloomy and dreary. One brilliant incandescent light burned in the hall, crudely illuminating the wicker fauteuil, a corded trunk with a blue and red label on it, a Fitzroy barometer, a map of Paris, a coloured poster of the Compagnie Transatlantique, and the mahogany retreat of the hall portress. In that retreat was not only the hall portress, an aged woman with a white cap over her wrinkled pink face, but the mistress of the establishment. They were murmuring together softly. They seemed to be well disposed to one another. The portress was respectful, but the mistress was respectful also. The hall, with its one light tranquilly burning, was bathed in an honest calm, the calm of a day's work accomplished, of gradual relaxation from tension, of growing expectation of repose. In its simplicity it affected Peel Swinnerton as a medicine tonic for nerves might have affected him. In that hall, though exterior nocturnal life was but just stirring into activity, it seemed that the middle of the night had come and that these two women alone watched in a mansion full of sleepers. And all the recitals which Peel Swinnerton and Mr. Marden had exchanged sank to the level of pitiably foolish gossip. Peel Swinnerton felt that his duty to the house was to retire to bed. He felt, too, that he could not leave the house without saying that he was going out, and that he lacked the courage deliberately to tell these two women that he was going out at that time of night. He dropped into one of the chairs, and made a second attempt to peruse the referee. Useless. Either his mind was outside in the Champs-Élysées, or his gaze would wander surreptitiously to the figure of Mrs. Scales. He could not well distinguish her face, because it was in the shadow of the mahogany. Then the portress came forth from her box, and, slightly bent, sped actively across the hall, smiling pleasantly at the guest as she passed him, and disappeared up the stairs. The mistress was alone in the retreat. Peel Swinnerton jumped up brusquely, dropping the paper with a rustle, and approached her. "'Excuse me,' he said deferentially. "'Have any letters come for me to-night?' He knew that the arrival of letters for him was impossible, since nobody knew his address. "'What name?' The question was coldly polite, and the questioner looked him full in the face. Undoubtedly she was a handsome woman— her hair was greying at the temples, and the skin was withered and crossed with lines. But she was handsome. She was one of those women of whom to their last on earth, the stranger will say, when she was young, she must have been worth looking at. With a little transient regret that beautiful young women cannot remain for ever young. Her voice was firm and even, sweet in tone, yet morally harsh from incessant traffic, with all varieties of human nature. Her eyes were the impartial eyes of one who is always judging, and evidently she was a proud, even a haughty creature, with her careful, controlled politeness. Evidently she considered herself superior to no matter what guest. 
Her eyes announced that she had lived and learnt, that she knew more about life than any one whom she was likely to meet, and that having pre-eminently succeeded in life, she had tremendous confidence in herself. The proof of her success was the unique Frenchams. A consciousness of the uniqueness of Frenchams was also in those eyes. Theoretically, Matthew Peel Swinnerton's mental attitude towards lodging-house keepers was condescending, but here it was not condescending. It had the real respectfulness of a man who, for the moment at any rate, is impressed beyond his calculations. His glance fell as he said, "'Appeal Swinnerton!' Then he looked up again. He said the words awkwardly and rather fearfully, as if aware that he was playing with fire. If this Mrs. Scales was the long-vanished aunt of his friend Cyril Povey, she must know those two names, locally so famous. Did she start? Did she show a sign of being perturbed? At first he thought he detected a symptom of emotion, but in an instant he was sure that he had detected nothing of the sort, and that it was silly to suppose that he was treading on the edge of a romance. Then she turned towards the letter-rack at her side, and he saw her face in profile. It bore a sudden and astonishing likeness to the profile of Cyril Povey, a resemblance unmistakable and finally decisive. The nose and the curve of the upper lip were absolutely Cyril's. Matthew Peel Swinnerton felt very queer. He felt like a criminal in peril of being caught in the act, and he could not understand why he should feel so. The landlady looked in the P pigeonhole and in the S pigeonhole. No, she said quietly, I see nothing for you. Taken with a swift rash audacity, he said, Have you had any one named Povey here recently? Povey? Yes, Cyril Povey, of Bursley, in the Five Towns. He was very impressionable, very sensitive, was Matthew Peel Swinnerton. His voice trembled as he spoke but hers also trembled in reply. "'Not that I remember. No. Were you expecting him to be her?' "'Well, it wasn't at all sure,' he muttered. "'Thank you. Good night.' "'Good night,' she said, apparently with the simple perfunctoriness of the landlady who says good night to dozens of strangers every evening. He hurried away upstairs and met the portress coming down. "'Well, well,' he thought, "'of all the queer things.' and he kept nodding his head. At last he had encountered something really strange in the spectacle of existence. It had fallen to him to discover the legendary woman who had fled from Bursley before he was born, and of whom nobody knew anything. What news for Cyril! What a staggering episode! He had scarcely any sleep that night. He wondered whether he would be able to meet Mrs. Scales without self-consciousness on the morrow— However, he was spared the curious ordeal of meeting her. She did not appear at all on the following day, nor did he see her before he left. He could not find a pretext for asking why she was invisible. 2. The hansom of Matthew Peel Swinnerton drew up in front of number 26, Victoria Grove, Chelsea. His kit-bag was on the roof of the cab. The cabman had a red flower in his buttonhole. Matthew leapt out of the vehicle, holding his straw hat on his head with one hand. On reaching the pavement, he checked himself suddenly and became carelessly calm. Another straw-hatted and grey-clad figure was standing at the side-gate of number 26, in the act of lighting a cigarette. "'Hello, Matt!' 
exclaimed the second figure languidly and in a veiled voice, due to the fact that he was still holding the match to the cigarette and puffing. "'What's the meaning of all this fluster? You're just the man I want to see.' He threw away the match with a wave of the arm, and took Matthew's hand for a moment, blowing a double shaft of smoke through his nose. "'I want to see you, too,' said Matthew, "'and I've only got a minute. I'm on my way to Euston. I must catch the twelve-five. He looked at his friend, and could positively see no feature of it that was not a feature of Mrs. Scales's face. Also, the elderly woman held her body in exactly the same way as the young man. It was entirely disconcerting. "'Have a cigarette,' answered Cyril Povey, imperturbably. He was two years younger than Matthew, from whom he had acquired most of his vast and intricate knowledge of life and art, with certain leading notions of deportment whose pupil, indeed, he was in all of the things that matter to young men. But he had already surpassed his professor. He could pretend to be old, much more successfully than Matthew could. The cabman approvingly watched the ignition of the second cigarette, and then the cabman pulled out a cigar, and showed his large white teeth as he bit the end of it. The appearance and manner of his fare, the quality of the kit-bag, and the opening gestures of the interview between the two young dukes had put the cabman in an optimistic mood. He had no apprehensions of miserly and ungentlemanly conduct by his fare upon the arrival at Euston. He knew the language of the tilt of a straw hat, and it was a magnificent day in London. The group of the two elegances, dominated by the perfection of the cabman, made a striking tableau of triumphant masculinity, content with itself and needing nothing. Matthew lightly took Cyril's arm, and drew him further down the street, past the gate leading to the studio, and hidden behind a house, which Cyril rented. "'Look here, my boy,' he began, "'I've found your aunt.' "'Well, that's very nice of you,' said Cyril solemnly. "'That's a friendly act. May I ask what aunt?' "'Mrs. Scales,' said Matthew. "'You know.' "'Not the—' Cyril's face changed. "'Yes, precisely,' said Matthew, feeling that he was not being cheated of the legitimate joy caused by making a sensation. Assuredly he had made a sensation in Victoria Grove. When he had related the whole story, Cyril said, "'Then she doesn't know, you know.' "'I don't think so. No, I'm sure she doesn't. She may guess.' "'But how can you be certain you haven't made a mistake? "'It may be that—' "'Look here, my boy,' Matthew interrupted him. "'I've not made any mistake.' "'But you've no proof.' "'Proof be damned,' said Matthew, nettled. "'I tell you, it's her.' "'Oh, all right, all right. "'What puzzles me most is what the devil you are doing in a place like that. "'According to your description of it, it must be a—' "'I went there because I was broke,' said Matthew. "'Razzle?' Matthew nodded. "'Pretty stiff, that,' commented Cyril, when Matthew had narrated the prologue to Trenchams. "'Well, she absolutely swore she never took less than two hundred francs, and she looked it, too, and she was worth it. I had the time of my life with that woman. I can tell you one thing. No more English for me. They simply aren't in it. How old was she?' Matthew reflected judicially. "'I should say she was thirty. The gaze of admiration and envy was upon him. He had the legitimate joy of making a second sensation. "'I'll let you know more about that when I come back,' he added. "'I can open your eyes, my child.' Cyril smiled sheepishly. "'Why can't you stay now?' 
he asked. "'I'm going to take the cast of that Verrill girl's arm this afternoon, "'and I know I can't do it alone, and Robson's no good. "'You're just the man I want.' "'Can't,' said Matthew. "'Well, come into the studio a minute, anyhow. "'Haven't time. I shall miss my train.' "'I don't care if you miss forty trains. You must come in. You've got to see that fountain,' Cyril insisted crossly. Matthew yielded. When they emerged into the street again, after six minutes of Cyril's savage interest in his own work, Matthew remembered Mrs. Scales. "'Of course you'll write to your mother,' he said. "'Yes,' said Cyril, "'I'll write, but if you happen to see her, you might tell her.' "'I will,' said Matthew. "'Shall you go over to Paris?' "'What? To see Auntie?' he smiled. "'I don't know. Depends. If the mater will fork out my exes, it's an idea,' he said lightly, and then, without any change of tone, "'Naturally, if you're going to idle about here all morning, you aren't likely to catch the twelve-five. Matthew got into the cab, while the driver, the stump of a cigar between his exposed teeth, leant forward and lifted the reins away from the tilted straw hat. "'By the by, lend me some silver.' "'Matthew demanded. "'It's a good thing that I've got my return ticket. "'I've run it as fine as I ever did in my life.' "'Cyril produced eight shillings in silver. "'Secure in the possession of these riches, "'Matthew called to the driver. "'Euston, like hell!' "'Yes, sir,' said the driver, calmly. "'Not coming my way, I suppose,' "'Matthew shouted as an afterthought, "'just when the cab began to move. "'No, barbers,' Cyril shouted in answer and waved his hand. The horse rattled into Fulham Road. End of Book Four, Chapter One, Part One